Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to today's forum. I'm Joe Neal. I'm deputy science editor at NPR covering health and health policy issues, and I'll be your moderator today. Since early last year, NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard Chan School have been involved in a major examination of discrimination in America, focusing mostly on the way it impacts health. Uh, but we didn't just look at healthcare, we've been looking at all aspects of discrimination and how it may impact health. We fielded a major poll, more than uh, 3,400 people responded or were um, asked questions. We asked their not about their opinions so much, but about their uh, uh, personal experiences of discrimination. Uh, when we got the data, it was clear that each group had particular areas where they had uh, discrimination problems. Uh, if we can have the first slide, please. Uh, you will see the groups here listed here. They included African-Americans, Latinos, whites, um, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, men and women, and uh, for today's uh, discussion, LGBTQ adults. Um, to get the discussion going, uh, we're joined today by a very distinguished panel. Um, uh, to my right here is Logan Casey. Logan is research assistant, uh, research associate at the Harvard Opinion Research Program and was deputy director of the project. Uh, next to him is Sari Reisner. Sari is assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology here at the Harvard Chan School. Uh, Kenneth Mayer is um, on the far right here. Ken is co-chair and medical research director of the Fenway Institute here in Boston. And joining us remotely, we hope, from Washington, D.C., is Ashland Johnson. Ashland is Director of Public Education and Research at the Human Rights Campaign and Advocacy Group. Uh, we hope Ashland can join us. Uh, there uh, is a big snowstorm on the East Coast, as many of you may know today, and Washington is shut down. So uh, we are hopeful that our connection will stay up with Ashland. Um, some notes before we get started. Uh, this event is presented jointly with NPR. We're streaming live on the websites of NPR, the forum, um, and, for, and the forum. Uh, we're also streaming on Facebook. Uh, the program will include a brief Q&A, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum website right now. Now to get started, um, let's hear from um, members of the transgender community about common misperceptions and personal experiences with discrimination. Uh, I'm going to show a clip now that's from NPR and is part of a video series called A Few Things to Know, in this case about being transgender. And the public eye, it seems as if transgender people get more respect, but in terms of day-to-day -day respect, it's not 100% fixed yet. Every 
day one of my transgender friends goes out, I'm nervous that they're not going to make it home. Um, I'm nervous that, you know, when they go on a date, some guy is going to get upset that they're transgender and hurt them. I think a lot of people, when they think about trans people, they are still really holding on to some very base ideas about uh, sex and gender that they grew up with. We've got all of this stuff that's really kind of like embedded in our operating systems. Being trans is as varied as being a straight person. That's the biggest misconception that if you associate as being trans, that that's all you are. Now, being transgender was uh, part of our poll looking at LGBTQ adults and discrimination. Uh, Logan, you were deputy director of the poll, and we looked um, at all LGBTQ adults, not just transgender uh, adults. Uh, set the stage for our discussion here. What did the poll find? Sure. Um, well, thank you, Joe, and thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, I just want to start with some quick background about the poll and what makes it unique before I go into these uh, specific findings about LGBTQ people. So a lot of polls that talk about discrimination in America tend to talk about or ask about um, what people's beliefs are about discrimination, whether it's happening, to whom, how important or big of a deal is that. Um, and this survey was really an effort to allow people to speak for themselves and to speak, as Joe said, directly to their own experiences with discrimination. So we do ask about their beliefs, but also, has this actually happened to you? And so that's one of the things that really sets this survey apart from many others, is getting, in getting to hear about people's actual experiences of discrimination in their own lives. And the survey was also unique because it covered both a wide range of areas of life, so employment, housing, healthcare, interpersonal experiences, and also a wide range of groups, the groups that Joe mentioned before, uh, different racial and, racial and ethnic identity groups, also men and women and LGBTQ people. Um, so that's what sort of sets the survey apart from others. Uh, so onto the LGBT data specifically, uh, I want to say generally we asked about two kinds of discrimination. These aren't mutually exclusive, but we just sort of used them as an organizational framework. And those two kinds were institutional forms of discrimination, uh, so that's like in employment, housing, healthcare, et cetera. And then we also asked about interpersonal or more individual forms of discrimination, like slurs and violence and harassment. And so one of the first things, the biggest takeaways from the data about the LGBTQ population was this interpersonal form of discrimination. So while LGBTQ people are certainly uh, reporting uh, forms of institutional discrimination, far and away the biggest numbers that we saw throughout the survey and specifically in the LGBTQ population was this interpersonal forms of discrimination. So you can see that on the first slide, please. So what you see here is a majority of LGBTQ people saying that they have personally experienced anti-LGBTQ slurs, slurs about their sexuality or their gender identity. 57% of LGBTQ people saying that they personally had this experience. And also a majority, 53% saying that they personally experienced offensive or insensitive comments or negative assumptions. So you might think of this as like a broader microaggression sort of category, uh, specifically about their sexual orientation or gender identity. So not just in general, but specifically related to their LGBTQ identity. And it's not just these two forms of discrimination, but the next slide, please, also shows us that a majority of LGBTQ people are saying that they or a friend or family member who is also an LGBTQ person have personally experienced threats or non-sexual harassment because of their LGBTQ identity. 51% people saying they, have, they or a friend or family member have experienced sexual harassment because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And 51% saying they've experienced violence uh, and furthermore, we see over a third of uh, LGBTQ people saying that they or someone they know 
have personally experienced verbal harassment or questioning in a bathroom. Right? So we see these extraordinarily high numbers of interpersonal forms of discrimination being reported by the LGBTQ community. Um, so the, the next main finding I want to talk about related specifically to the topic today about health, next slide please, um, is looking at experiences of discrimination in healthcare. So the top bar shows you the percent of people, of LGBTQ people who say that they themselves have personally experienced discrimination because they're an LGBTQ person uh, at the doctor or at a health clinic. So about one in six people saying that they've experienced this themselves. And the bar just below that shows you that nearly one in five people, LGBT people, say that they have avoided seeking medical care altogether due to fear that they would be discriminated against because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And this is, these findings, uh, they might seem less important than the previous ones because of the number difference, but I want to emphasize that this is really, really important, especially because there's a ton of research, including by colleagues here at Harvard, uh, David Williams in particular, showing that experiencing discrimination is associated with a whole range of negative health outcomes. And so if you're experiencing this discrimination on such a widespread scale, and it's having all these negative health impacts, and then on top of that, you're not going to a doctor, you're not having a regular form of health care, that is going to compound the effects of discrimination. I know the colleagues are going to talk about this further. Um, Okay, and then the last point that I want to make uh, that I think is super important for this conversation, especially given sort of the representation of who's here on the panel and the voices we couldn't get into the room, um, and also a conversation that's just important for everything about LGBTQ and other experiences in America, there's significant differences, uh, racial differences in uh, these experiences. So the next slide, please. So what this is showing you here is that even when we're asking about discrimination that is specifically related to being a part of the LGBTQ community, there are significant differences between LGBTQ people of color and white LGBTQ people in reporting these experiences. So what the red bar is showing you is the percent of all of the LGBTQ people we talked to who said that they'd been moving from left to right, discriminated against when applying for jobs, discriminated against when interacting with the police, or that they have avoided calling the police even when in need out of concern that they're going to be discriminated against because of their sexuality or gender identity. And the black bar is showing you that, uh, the black and gray bars are showing you that LGBTQ people of color are significantly more likely than white LGBTQ people to report these experiences. So they're two and a, roughly two and a half times more likely to say they've been discriminated against when seeking jobs, more than twice as likely to say this when interacting with the police, and six times more likely to say they've avoided calling the police. And I want to emphasize again, this is not just discrimination in general. This is discrimination that's specifically attributed to LGBT identity. So not necessarily racial identity, but LGBT identity. And we're still seeing these very big racial differences and experiences uh, in discrimination. So those are the three main takeaways from the poll for today. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Joe. Thanks. And by health effects, when you were talking about David Williams' work, mm -hmm. we're talking about diseases like heart disease, mm -hmm. asthma, chronic diseases that the insidious day-to-day -day discrimination, uh, the toll that it takes, um, and in also increases infant mortality, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, very compelling data. That, that was one of the reasons we wanted to mount this project in NPR. Uh, Sari, I want to turn to you next. Uh, you've found health disparities when comparing the LGBT community with those who are not part of the community um, and uh, disparities within the population of LG the LGBTQ population as a whole. Uh, tell us what you found and also um, I'd like to hear about your work 
uh, on bullying LGBTQ youth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what we see, you know, on a population level, really, uh, is disparities uh, for LGBTQ folks relative to non-LGBTQ folks, um, and we see that in a whole host and range of outcomes. Uh, you know, the epidemiology has been growing as we're adding questions to surveys to identify uh, respondents, so that we can actually look at the health of LGBTQ people. Um, one of the uh, sort of significant developments has been uh, the National Institutes of Health uh, making LGBTQ people a priority population, a disparities population for research purposes. So this really propels us forward to think about you know, population level disparities, what we see across physical health outcomes, we see it across mental health outcomes, two to five fold really increased risk. And all of these we see with the population that discrimination and social stressors really do elevate and increase um, the risks. Um, and so this is really around uh, minority stress processes, um, when we're looking particularly around intersectionality and, and LGBTQ people of color. You know, the notion is that there are specific stressors um, that LGBTQ populations face, in addition to the everyday stressors that other populations face, but that are distinct and unique to LGBTQ people. And that really is around some of the data that you saw um, earlier around slurs um, and everyday discrimination experiences. Um, when we look within the LGBTQ population, we also see differences. So it's not not like every group within the LGBTQ umbrella has the same health, right? And this is where we talk about, um, you know, individuals of color, particularly when we talk about black and LGBTQ populations. We can see, for example, if we look at uh, infectious disease epidemiology, which is, is something that I do around HIV and STIs, we see a very high burden uh, in black, uh, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, particularly in the younger ages, 13 to 24, there's the highest incidence of HIV in those cases. And we see transgender women also, um, uh, black transgender women especially burdened by HIV, with uh, uh, one uh, estimated one in two black transgender women living with HIV in this country. So, you know, we do have uh, a lot of, of, of work to do. Um, and we, we also need to be considerate and understand that the different pathways uh, for where people are positioned, i.e. in their age, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic position, uh, matter for their health. Um, I guess, you know, lastly, in terms of the bullying um, and the piece around the health disparities, we see that these emerge very early in life. You know, we see that uh, the disparities, if we look at the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey in high schools, we see that the LGBTQ youth already burdened. Um, and bullying really is pervasive. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, about 30% uh, of LGBTQ youth report being bullied. Um, so when we think about the life course and we think about the shaping of people, um, that, those early experiences really do affect physical and mental health later uh, across the life. And we see that across a number of studies. Um, the last thing I'll say about bullying is, is that stigma-based bullying, that is to say, bullying specifically, for example, attributed to sexual orientation or gender identity, has been shown to have worse health effects for LGBTQ youth than non-stigma-based bullying. Um, so this is important in terms of thinking about it's actually specifically targeted to those characteristics that one might say are stigmatized or those that are socially devalued uh, overall in the population. So that's some of the information that we see. Well, thank you, Sari. We'll, we'll return to some of these mm -hmm. things in the discussion and flesh them out more. Um, Ken, I want to turn to you now. The, the number that Logan presented about uh, LGBTQ people being less likely to interact and engage with the healthcare system, we found that to be a really stunning number, um, that this level of fear of discrimination in healthcare and avoidance of healthcare was so high. Uh, what do you think about that finding, and, and why are people avoiding I mean, what can you do to uh, uh, overcome this avoidance of healthcare? 
Well, Joe, I, th I think uh, the biggest challenge is that the healthcare system is woefully unprepared to um, take appropriate care of LGBT people. Um, you know, we have this idea of cultural competence or cultural um, congruence, humility uh, for racial and ethnic minority group members, which is extremely important. And the idea that there is that people from um, um, different racial ethnic minority communities may have a shared history and a certain cultural experience um, in terms of how they've um, uh, been dealt with in society and particularly by the healthcare system. Uh, but there also may be specific um, uh, illnesses, specific entities that clinicians need to know about. It may be related to salt and uh, certain uh, diets um, that are cultural norms. It may relate to um, specific diseases like sickle cell. It's, it's a dawning idea that I think has to gain more traction that there's also a whole field of um, sexual gender minority health that providers need to have an understanding of. Because I think that most people go into clinical training, want to do the right thing. And if they realize that they are woefully unprepared to provide culturally competent care for, uh, for patients. So people who are sexual and gender minority individuals, uh, there are specific sexual practices that may need different um, associations, different health, um, health needs, uh, but there also may be um, um, cultural attitudes that may that they may be bringing into the healthcare system. And certainly a common thread is this anticipation of experience discrimination that leads to avoidant behavior. Uh, another important uh, concept, Sarah uh, mentioned minority stress. There's also the whole idea of, of a life course approach to um, the experiences of discrimination. And the way this manifests itself is if one grows up in a, a society that's non-affirming for one's uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, there's a lot of internalized stigma. The internalized stigma can lead to depression. Uh, de depression can lead to self-medication and increased rates of substance use. So another concept we talk about are syndemics. But that approach uh, can pathologize people. And the point is that the problem is not the individual. The problem is the society. And as healthcare providers, we really have an opportunity to um, identify evidence-based approaches that will help people obtain the optimal health. And even though there are higher rates, for example, of, of depression in uh, um, most uh, studies of sexual gender minority individuals, uh, the vast majority of individuals growing up in non-affirming um, environments are not depressed or not using substances um, um, uh, in ways that are harmful to themselves. So understanding resilience is an important part of the training process as well. But as, as clinicians, we don't get well-trained uh, nutrition. We don't get well-trained in other specific um, uh, health-affirming um, behaviors, and I think uh, human sexuality, uh, uh, irrespective of whether it's uh, sexual uh, gender minority individuals, is not a well-taught area. But I think that there's an emerging body of um, um, evidence that says that it's really important for clinicians to understand these issues so they can provide affirmative environments. Very simple things like asking somebody, do you have sex with men, women, or both, uh, creates an opening space. And it's well established that uh, Providers can um, create um, a, a space where individuals can disclose and discuss um, behaviors and get the appropriate uh, triage of services that they need. So it's a really uh, important issue that we're talking about today. One of the things that we found in our reporting on NPR around this poll, we did uh, more than two dozen stories, and you can find them on our website, npr.org, uh, was in rural areas in particular, uh, uh, LGBTQ adults are. Uh, are fearful that their doctors just won't know how to deal with them. And in fact, uh, the person that was uh, featured in one of the pieces uh, was HIV positive, wanted to get put on uh, uh, post-exposure, or on PrEP, which is a drug that you take every day to um, 
uh, which you take every day. Actually, he was HIV negative. I'm getting the story mixed up. Uh, but he went into his doctor. His doctor didn't know anything about this, uh, but he then educated himself. The doctor said, well, I need to learn more about this because I want to take care of people like you. And there is that attitude in the profession. Uh, there is a learning attitude, but, um, you know, oftentimes, evidently from the study, we found that many people feel that they've been discriminated against. Uh, it's a multifaceted problem. I want to turn now to Ashland, uh, who um, is with the Human Rights Campaign in Washington, D.C., uh, where you focus on the LGBTQ community, and we have lost our connection. Is that what I'm being told? Well, I'm sorry uh, that Ashland is not with us right now. Possibly we'll get that connection um, restored. Ashland uh, wanted to talk about many areas of civil rights and reproductive justice, uh, gender identity, um, uh, and some of the political action around um, uh, discrimination in Washington and in states. Um, there are a number of state and local bills, for example, uh, that affect areas such as access to safe spaces, um, LGBTQ youth avoiding exercise, um, and if we can rejoin her, perhaps she can uh, fill us in more on that. Um, so I'd like to turn now to the second part of our forum where we mix it up a little more um, and uh, dive deeper into some of the issues that you've just heard about. Um, um, I'll get started by showing uh, a video that uh, was produced by the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, you'll be seeing Cindy Eldridge, uh, who's a Justice Department attorney in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Uh, she does civil work uh, and has lived abroad and in the U.S. And if we can have that clip now. The more people that come out and the more people in the community that are like have a son, a daughter, a friend, a mother uh, who's in the LGBTQ community, then that's what changes culturally. And I think that's what's changed the U.S. culturally. As far as how to change the laws, people need to register and they need to vote. Living overseas did make me appreciate that we have the ability to do that here. You can't always do that in other places, not and still, you know, be free and not be in jail. So um, I think it's our obligation to do that. Go to your city council meeting when they're doing something you don't like and get on the agenda and stand up and say something about it. You know, if you want to fire somebody for no reason at all, that's your right in this state. But if you want to fire them because they're gay, that's just wrong. You shouldn't be able to. Um, and you shouldn't be able to federally either. And, the, you know, the law at the moment federally is unclear and it could become even more unclear. So, um, you know, I think it should be changed. Right. Um, Ms. Eldridge was talking about uh, the situation in Washington becoming more unclear. Uh, we had a story on NPR last night on All Things Considered about uh, the new head of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Human, Health and Human Services, Roger Severino, and he is, uh, his uh, agenda appears to be offering, uh, he wants to allow providers, healthcare providers, more freedom to choose what to treat and when to treat it. Uh, so I think those, that's certainly a concern to many in this community. And uh, while there are new policies right away that we've seen, uh, we'll have to watch and see how that turns out. Um, and I know that, that uh, um, Ashland's group will certainly be involved with that. Um, 
let me turn now to, uh, to, to stay on that topic a little bit because we're all, the, uh, the panelists here in Boston um, are scientists involved deeply in data collection and data um, analysis. Um, Sari, I'll turn to you first and, and if you could talk about uh, the Mass Massachusetts Transgender Rights Bill that's been developed out of uh, this kind of research. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the areas, uh, you know, where we are in need of more data and information is around transgender health specifically. Um, and uh, this is a burgeoning area and we've been seeing uh, more media attention to this effort. Uh, and we still lack a lot of information. Um, the information that we do have really has been focused uh, around medical treatments and care. Um, what we are learning more about is how uh, policies might impact uh, the, the health of transgender populations more overall. So um, in uh, 2013, we did Project Voice uh, in, in affiliated with uh, Fenway Health, uh, and that was a survey of 452 um, transgender uh, and gender nonconforming individuals in the state of Massachusetts. And the purpose really was to look at public accommodations discrimination. So this was experiences of discrimination literally in areas open to the public. Um, you know, traditionally this has been looked at in terms of bathrooms uh, and so-called bathroom bills as the main kind of issue. Um, you know, uh, health institutions and healthcare settings is, are areas of public accommodation. Uh, and so I think that, that really for us was the, the focus. So what we found was uh, uh, about 25% of that sample um, reported discrimination specifically in healthcare. And this included things like actually being refused care. Um, so, um, so these these data were used then uh, for a bill for non-discrimination bill. We worked with the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition to add public accommodations to uh, the laws in Massachusetts. Now, what's happening? That happened in 2016. What's happening now is there's a movement to repeal that. Uh, it's actually going to be on the state ballot, um, and this is really the first time that such a, a, a process for civil civil liberties has been on the state ballot like this for transgender uh, rights. So it is uh, right now a very uh, an issue that we need. To pay attention to and, and be doing work around, um, and certainly an issue in many other parts. Oh, of the absolutely, country. yeah, absolutely. That is uh, just our local efforts here in Massachusetts. Yeah, uh, Ken, talk a little bit more about uh, collecting data and how data, uh, what data are needed to to improve health, uh, electronic health records, for example. Yeah, well. Uh, with the move towards electronic health records, it's an enormous opportunity to standardize how we collect information that's vital uh, to patient health. It informs patient care. It also can inform research. Now, in the past, many uh, providers said, I don't want to ask these questions. I'm going to make all my patients uncomfortable. But we actually did a study at Fenway of four community health centers around the country. Um, and three of the community health centers were, were not explicitly focused on LGBT uh, populations the same way that Fenway Health is. Um, so we had Fenway a, being here in Boston. Being here right. in Boston. And, and we had a uh, sample of several thousand individuals and we were asked, uh, um, how would you feel if your provider asked you routinely about your sexual orientation or gender identity? And the vast majority, 90% range, said that's fine. And they saw it as a normal part of health care. And that did not differ as to whether they identified as heterosexual or as uh, sexual gender minority individuals. So from that, we've really um, been trying to promote the idea of do ask, do tell. Um, we put out various monographs. Uh, the do ask, do tell. Do ask, do tell, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I have a monograph here, um, um, and it's available on the website of our, um, uh, the fenwayinstitute.org is, um, uh, is our overall website. And then we have um, some grants from the federal government. We have a National Center for LGBT Health Education. So if you keyword LGBT health education, 
um, they're actually tools to help make it easier for providers to ask these questions. Uh, there, there are different discussions about what are the best ways to ask the questions in a systematic way, but the point is it's just very important to ask the questions so that one can determine whether to do appropriate um, uh, sexually transmitted disease screening, appropriate counseling. It begins a conversation that really can promote health. Uh, as part of this whole, whole idea. Yeah, but, but let me just stop you there. Isn't one of the issues, though, that, pr that providers feel uncomfortable asking that simple question? Right, and that's why providers uh, need, need training. So th the federal government actually has supported uh, the education center to go out to primary care centers around the country to explain why this is important. Because uh, for many providers, there's an aha moment. Um, obviously, people grow up embedded in culture. There are people who grow up um, um, going to faith institutions that are non-affirming. But when they go in into a healthcare profession, if they're told you're going to provide a um, bad job in providing health services to your patients. Your patients may have worse clinical outcomes if you don't ask about these questions. If we can get providers to say, we're not asking you to endorse, you're not voting on that person's lifestyle. They're making their own choices, but you're going to be providing really poor health care. And, and it's the idea of trying to get providers to have some level of cultural humility about the things they don't know and realize that there are data, there is evidence. Um, we've uh, published a textbook, uh, The Fenway Guide to LGBT Health, and it's um, published under the aegis of the American College of Physicians, which is the home organization of internists around the country. Uh, so more than five years ago, they already recognized the need for this, and uh, the textbook has been in its second edition. So we're optimistic. I mean, I really feel the, the hook, and it's the right hook for providers, is you're going to do a better job in providing patient care. Did you really go into this profession to do a bad job? I, I, I think if we can get people to understand that, that, that will really help turn things around. Um, I, I'm going to ask, do we have Ashlyn? We just don't. Um, I know that one thing that she was going to, to talk about was the move uh, in, in the federal government to uh, stop collecting as much data on LGBTQ issues, uh, particularly, particularly in the 2020 census. Uh, that is still in flux, and um, it's an issue that we're going to be watching more of um, at NPR. But let me turn to you, Logan, and, and talk to you. What kind of data can polling provide and help? All kinds of data. <laughs> um, I think having more data is imperative, both in, in polling research and in other forms of research, clinical, academic, and so on. Um, it's imperative that we get this data, whether it's just asking, just asking sexual orientation and gender identity measures, or asking like this survey was trying to get at about your actual experiences as a member of a particular community, particularly small or vulnerable communities that are very often understudied. And so, you know, given that polling and other forms of research are often used in national conversations in the media or conversations like this one, and hopefully I think many of us academics hope that our work will be used in policy making or program creation to make things a little bit better, um, it's incredibly important to ask people about their own experiences because if nothing else, you know, it can give them a voice at the table. Right? It, even if they're not in the room or on the panel, being able to speak to their own experiences, having asked about those experiences in the research allows um, those voices to be present in the room in these conversations that are about these important issues affecting people's lives. Um, and also having the data is important um, on a more practical level, not just like this idea of giving people a voice, but on the practical level of, you know, if you, just because you don't have the data on an issue doesn't mean that there's not a problem. Um, so adding sexual orientation and gender identity measures to all these different kinds of polls or research uh, can help us, include, well, including work that's not explicitly LGBTQ related, um, will allow us a fuller and more accurate picture 
of Americans' experiences with each other in these sort of interpersonal ways, but also in healthcare and in government programs and in other institutional settings. And the same is true for race and class and disability, all of these things that even if you don't think that the research you're doing or the polls that you're doing are things about LGBT issues or about disability, if you add these questions, you'll know, right? Like we might not think food scarcity is an LGBT issue, but it turns out LGBTQ people are disproportionately living in poverty in this country, and so disproportionately using programs like that, right? And so being able to add these measures, collect data, even when you think that's not the issue that you're studying, is important so that we can really truly understand, or at least understand better, what's going on. Um, and furthermore, it allows us to you know, track over time, right? So there's always gonna be a claim that this is getting better, or that's getting worse, or this policy is really effective, or it's really terrible. And without having these sort of questions and data collection efforts about experiences and about including identities, um, you don't know, right? Like you're speculating. And they might be very informed, uh, educated speculation, but you're s w the data will help us know truly what's happening and if these uh, training of, of healthcare, of physicians and medical providers is being effective or if maybe this data is enabling more discrimination or seeing how we can do better at every turn. So we need the data to help us with that. So. More data, more data, more data. Sarah. I mean, we're talking about issues around structural, um, you know, discrimination, and I mean, the exclusion of measures really is a form of, you know, institutionalized discrimination. Um, you know, and I think that's uh, something that we really need to highlight here. Um, uh, you know, as another mechanism, um, you know, we're talking about health surveillance that we are able to look at populations. And, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, I come from a field of social epidemiology. We really look around kind of determinants of age, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic position, and, and really LGBTQ status hasn't traditionally been a social determinant, like as a codified issue. And it is. And, and I think when we look at the discrimination but statistics. But it's still not codified in terms of in terms of federal collection of data or... Correct, right, right. correct. Well, that's the push, you know, in terms of uh, what we're moving towards. Mm -hmm. um, but the conversation about that is that it is a social determinant of health mm -hmm. that needs to be uh, included. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to turn to questions now. Um, I'll just say, while Lisa Mirowitz, um, our uh, director of the forum, comes up, uh, that Ashlyn also wanted to make many of these points, and, and I'm sorry that she couldn't join us today. Lisa. Thanks, everyone. And I know Ashlyn is still trying to connect, so if she does, we'll bring her in as soon as we can. It's a snowstorm in D.C. <laughs> All those happens. three or four inches of snow have shut everything down it's there. It's not even that yet, but <laughs> it does shut things down. Um, <laughs> so we have had a number of questions, and I'll share a couple of them, and I'm sure our audience may have some questions as well. Sure. Um, let's see. Let's take this one. Are LGBTQ youth disproportionately affected by mental health issues. We've had a number of questions on that front. Can you talk about that a little bit, with, or, or Sari? Yeah, I mean, I think we both can comment. Uh, it, the answer is yes. And, and again, it comes back to um, this minority stress issue. Uh, early age people are much more vulnerable. There's less buffering um, in society. There's, um, um, you know, less, less affirm affirmation. So certainly um, it, is a, it is a concern. And uh, Again, um, there's a real opportunity to, um, at, at an early stage, to create programs that, that engage um, LGBTQ youth and can enforce, uh, uh, reinforce a sense of resilience uh, uh, for them. So certainly um, um, there, there's uh, been literature about some of the gay straight student alliances that have been very um, helpful in uh, achieving uh, better uh, behavioral health outcomes uh, for LGBTQ youth. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I mean, absolutely, in terms of mental health outcomes, disproportionately facing LGBT youth. You know, that includes depression, anxiety. It also includes substance use, uh, tobacco use. You know, and importantly, these are all also some of these are markers of uh, later risk for, for example, cancer, right? Cancer-related risk behaviors happening very early. Um, so it's a kind of cascade across, uh, across many outcomes in terms of uh, integrating mental and physical health. You know, one of the really, um, you know, startling, I think, uh, issues is around suicide and, and suicide attempts and the really high prevalence of this already uh, in, in, in young people, um, and especially within transgender populations. Um, there's uh, some data that suggests there was a, a U.S. transgender survey uh, with more than uh, 20,000 transgender adults that was done by the National Center of Transgender Equity. And, um, you know, they found 40% lifetime uh, suicide attempt in this sample, which is just startling. You know, it's startling. And when we look at those data a little closer, we do see the onset really is, you know, late teens to, to, to mid-20s, that range as being a particularly uh, critical period uh, that we would want to intervene on. So uh, absolutely, uh, and that's a, a core issue. Yeah. And being, being a double minority, I learned the term during this project, the intersectionality, where people are one or at least one, if not two or three minorities at the same time, that just adds to the burden, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. And, and you get back to this whole issue of how important the social and structural issues are as they interplay when you're dealing with people early in life course continuum. So a, a, a big aha moment for me was learning that a third of the, the homeless youth in Massachusetts are LGBTQ youth. And then you go back and say, oh, right. Um, they come out and they get kicked out of the house their, of their um, birth family, um, the family that they're growing up with. And all of a sudden you get, so it's not, when we talk about the healthcare system, we also have to talk about sort of the broader social structures as well because they're not divorced from each other. Great, thank you. And thank you for addressing the suicide question. That's so important. We have had another question on that front, so thank you. I'll just take a few more and then we can turn to the audience. Um, there have been some questions about the poll data. So does the data show any indication at all of increase in public acceptance of LGBTQ individuals? Logan? That's a, a great question. So our poll focuses on asking LGBTQ people themselves, what are their experiences <coughs> with discrimination and what do they think about discrimination? Uh, so it doesn't ask non-LGBTQ people, what do you think about LGBTQ people or what, you know, what are your acceptance levels. There is lots of research out there that's one of the most common forms of polling on LGBTQ related is issues is what do you think, how accepting are you, do you support these issues or not. So there's a lot of data out there including Pew and Gallup and some of the work that we've, uh, our unit has done in the past. Um, so that's, that's easily accessible. I think a, a lot of the story that gets told though when we're thinking about increasing acceptance over time, it tends to sort of paint this good picture that things for the LGBTQ community are getting better, right? And I think what this poll and all of the research here uh, and the videos that we watched illustrate is that <clears> while <throat> national polling data might show this sort of trend, the day-to-day -day experiences of LGBTQ people are much more complicated than these numbers on a graph, right? And so it's important to us to keep turning to LGBTQ people themselves to hear what their experiences actually are. Great, thank you. Thank you, Logan. Um, I'll just do this last one. Uh, what would your advice be to LGBTQ people when it comes to initiating conversations with their care providers about their health concerns? Do you know of any resources that provide checklists, for lack of a better word, that can be used as a guide for patients, given the challenges we face with providers? 
Ken? <laughs> um, you know, it, it it's, it's challenging, we, you know, because we'd like to say in theory you should be able to, you know, fire your provider if they're not providing, um, you know, competent care. And that's um, not um, limited to um, around sexual orientation, gender identity, but obviously uh, the, the more um, uh, socioeconomically um, challenged somebody is, the, the fewer options they may have for where they receive health care. Um, you know, I, I think that there is um, an increasing recognition that providing um, quality care is a, a you know, health performance indicator. Um, so, the, so larger institutions actually do get rated by, um, you know, a quality index by the Human Rights Campaign. So I think there are um, opportunities if one's engaging in care in a larger um, center. Um, I think, with, you know, a rural person in a small private, uh, you know, community-based practice, and that's the only option, I think, um, trying to um, show to the provider that there are sort of nationally recognized uh, uh, standards and tools, I think, is great, but it puts a lot of uh, burden on, on, on the individual. But at, at this point in time, I don't know that, that um, all institutions are going to have a credentialing that says that they, they um, have the checkbox, but certainly um, here in, in, in this area, in the Longwood area, um, all the major teaching hospitals, um, you know, do, do indicate that they've, you know, met the metrics of uh, having a very high uh, HRC uh, index, uh, equality index uh, for their performance standards. And we should speak up for rural, some rural providers mm -hmm. are obviously very competent. It's mm -hmm. just the level of, of um, uh, the level of care people might get, it would be different. Did you want to add something, Sari? Uh, yeah, I mean, in, initiating those conversations is really difficult, you know, um, in terms of, you know, being a member of the LGBTQ community and, and going to the doctor and needing to have those conversations. Uh, you know, the, the fear of stigma, the anticipated fear of stigma is there and that internalized um, piece, you know, and also it's it, the structures uh, need to be able to support us as LGBTQ people in, in getting our care. So in other words, something uh, as simple as a registration form uh, that would ask about pronouns and ask about gender identity and sexual orientation would provide such a tool, at least would begin that conversation, um, you know, with a provider. So, um, you know, including to, it's a multi-level piece of uh, the individual level with us and also the interpersonal and structural supporting, supporting that in care. Are there lists of, of, of LGBTQ physicians or sensitive physicians? I know that when I first uh, was seeking care as a young adult, uh, being gay, that I, I went to some lists. I fortunately lived in a big city at the time. Uh, but are there things like that still? Uh, because I did find a, a good provider that way. Yeah, the, the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, so jlma.org, uh, certainly maintains that, that functionality. You know, the, the challenge is that um, not every provider is necessarily going to um, think to, to list themselves uh, there. So it's sort of a, you know, again, gets back to sort of a sense of self-efficacy that um, some individuals may not um, readily ha have because of various circumstances in their lives. But um, mm -hmm. there are, you know, in, in the current society that we live in, uh, there, there, um, there are um, the tools and the, there are ways to mobilize support as a sort of feeling empowered to be able to, uh, able to do that. Another question, Lisa? Oh, I, I do, just while we're on the topic of lists. People are asking about lists of uh, workplaces for uh, LGBT employees, positive work environments, and where these resources might exist, and if they're regional, depending. I guess the question is about employers that um, offer better work environments for LGBTQ employees. And this is maybe a question for Ashland, but mm -hmm. I don't know if any of you want to offer anything on that front. 
the human rights, I think if you go to the human rights campaign website, uh, they, Most likely. they, they, they do yeah. rank institutions. Uh, right. What, what Ashley will be able to say is how comprehensive is the list at this point in time. But major employers and certainly major healthcare systems are very attuned to this because um, you know, depend. You know, again, when you ask the questions, you know, uh, um, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity is very complex. So, you know, uh, you know, how do you identify? Who are you attracted to? What do you do? Those those um, three universes don't always map um, in neat fashion. But if, so, if you just take the broader questions about um, people would say yes, any of these where they would um, not be considered heterosexual, it's over 10 percent of the population. Any um, given survey, and so. A large institution um, sort of starts recognizing as the community has more consciousness, if they're perceived to be non-affirming, uh, not supportive, they're going to lose business. So, that, you know, so uh, that, that's the hope that uh, most larger institutions have gotten that message by now. Great, great. Thank you. Question from the audience. Hi, yes. I'm uh, Carl Street. I'm a uh, past chair for the American Medical Association's LGBTQ Advisory Committee, as well as the current chair for the Mass Medical Society's uh, LGBTQ Advisory Committee. I'm um, hearing a lot of great uh, data and a lot of great information highlighting how patients are so fearful that they're not even accessing healthcare providers. So it's great that we focus on training healthcare providers and we work on their entire engagement in the healthcare system from when they look on the webpage to registration to the register and so forth. How do we as healthcare professionals step out of the clinic and start advocating for more structural change. Here we have a bill in Massachusetts stripping rights that were granted, which they shouldn't have necessarily explicitly had to be granted in the first place, but here we have a bill that is uh, a major advocacy issue on a structural level. How do we get healthcare providers to engage and become more of an advocate outside of that one-on-one -on -one engagement uh, with their patients? I'm sure Ashland would have something to say, but uh, Ken? Yeah, no, I, I, Carl, you, um, you bring up an excellent point. You know, this idea of uh, provider activists is certainly not new to the current era. Uh, Rudolf Virchow, a, a, a father of modern pathology, was uh, the barricades in the 1848 uh, revolutions. So, um, you know, again, that's individual choice, but I think you're, you know, some of the work that you've been doing, um, you know, speaks to the fact that we, um, as professionals, we have organiza home organizations and we need to make our voices known, particularly if we think that we're not just asking for, um, you know, the way it's sometimes framed um, um, by, by certain forces is that this is special rights, special privileges, it's asking, it's asking for something extra, as opposed to saying that, no, this is about providing optimal care to, to people. If in the healthcare setting, we, we want to optimize outcomes, and uh, if you're doing something that's going to compromise that, that's inimical to um, what we're trying to do. So I think the more we can internally, uh, with, with our peers, um, bring that message loud and clear. And, and part of it is marshalling the evidence. So I, th I think that uh, very well-constructed um, studies that show you control for everything else and, and uh, being, uh, you know, um, somebody from a sexual or gender minority um, population leads to worse health outcomes, I think speaks volumes. And there certainly is a robust literature um, that supports that uh, basic thesis now. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a, a, a really important piece, Carl, and obviously your work is addressing that. Um, you know, one part of this is that um, in terms of the, the healthcare setting, um, you know, there's been uh, a history of mistrust in a lot of ways, uh, you know, in interacting with the healthcare setting. And, you know, I think uh, I'm thinking about transgender populations specifically. And, and, th and that's just not, I should point out, that's not just li limited to LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, African Americans certainly have a long history of being discriminated against in the absolutely. healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think the piece around the history and the legacy of you know gay and lesbian and transgender people being uh, a psychiatric diagnosis uh, really leads to uh, and has been the the sort of traditional piece where we're trying to move away from that. And so medicine and having that piece in the history, you know, there is a, a need for providers to, um, you know, be activists and know that history when they have their patients coming to them, you know, and and um, and for patients to know that as well. So, um, yeah, so this this move basically from, you know, disorder, if you will, to uh, to identity where we are now, this identity-based um, model is really a, a shift, uh, an exciting shift. And I think really when we talk about discrimination is part of that as well. Another question from the audience. Um, hi, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Montita Sopark. I'm an undergraduate student right now at the college um, studying women, gender, sexuality. Um, I was wondering, um, so let's say that, you know, with advocacy, with outreach, with dissemination of information, providers do become more, you know, uh, affirming, accepting, et cetera, in terms of behaviors and attitudes. Um, but then, I guess, what are the gaps in the actual provision of care that maybe we haven't developed new procedures or new, um, uh, like, uh, methods for yet? For example, you know, if folks are uh, don't identify as women, but still need pap smears, like, and that can be like a dysphoric experience. Like, what you know, what are those gaps? Or if folks uh, want to change their gender identity, but then that has an effect on their insurance and their access to care. Like, what are those gaps um, in that process? Yeah, no, I, I, you raised two really great great points, and it, it speaks to the fact that uh, the healthcare system is such a com complex um, patchwork of, of issues. So, so the the, the issue of um, uh, for example, pap smears uh, for individuals uh, who, um, you know, uh, might might be trans men or may be um, transitioning, uh, may um, may have a, a gender nonconforming identity. Um, it involves a great deal of training and education. So there actually is a uh, worldwide professional organization of uh, professionals in uh, transgender health that has an annual meeting, an annual international meeting, and it's taking them time to come up with uh, various standards of care. Then the issue is disseminating it uh, to providers so that providers understand. Um, uh, one of our uh, colleagues, my co-director of the Fenway Institute, uh, Dr. Jenny Potter, uh, has really uh, focused on the issue that uh, for, for uh, some um, individuals who are trans men, there also may have been an earlier uh, experience uh, that might have involved tra trauma. And so that the pap smear has many connotations that, um, both both thoughts about well is this not affirming my new identity versus uh, how how I'm uh, approached so uh, by by putting this in a larger context of primary care that pap smears for some women uh, will be uh, uh, traumatic and pap smears for other uh, individuals may be traumatic and trying to be sensitive to that is part of the education and learning for that specific practice mm -hmm. the issue of um, uh, insurance and uh, you know uh, we don't have one healthcare system here in the U.S. You know we have 50 plus systems and so the challenge is that uh, in some some states it's you know quite um, easy uh, or uh, relatively easy uh, uh, to um, as a person transitions to uh, change uh, um, all the documentation. Other places it's still uh, very difficult. So I think these are. Uh, issues that have to be uh, adjudicated, have to be fought on a, on a sort of state-by-state state and case-by-case basis. 
I mean, in terms of uh, you know the issue of pap testing and, and transmasculine people, you know, clinical innovations. I mean, we're you know in the Harvard system, in the Harvard Med School. There's a lot going on in terms of trying to change clinical care and clinical practice. Um, uh, we just did a study uh, uh, looking at uh, self-swabbing. Uh, for HPV uh, as a kind of first line for cervical cancer screening in transmasculine people and compared that to provider collected swabbing. So, you know, thinking about harm reduction approaches, thinking about ways that we can provide patient-centered care, you know, in the research and the clinical care, you need to speak to one another and be integrated. Uh, and, and so that's an example um, of a way that we might uh, be creative thinking forward. All right. Lisa, we have one more question. Yes, um, these are just uh, questions from Facebook. Um, why do you think there is so little research in lesbian and bisexual women's health in the U.S. and internationally, and what can we do to change this? What can we do to improve financing this type of study, these types of studies in this population? Let's take that. Uh, well, you know, I, I th uh, the, the First answer would be that the majority of, of doctors and researchers are have the Y chromosome. It may be part of the <laughs> part of the challenge, uh, and, and I think I think there's some truth to that. I also think that um, there is this phenomenon with various minorities of the model minority, and then when you unpack it, it's just it's it's laziness or just people not really getting it. So I think model minority uh, among um, racial ethnic minorities would be Asian Pacific Islander, um, and, you know, as if that's one homogeneous group in the first place. And that is really not the case. But, but people said, well, they don't have the same disparities because uh, um, they all have higher SES, which is certainly not true. SES uh, being socioeconomic status. status sorry, yeah. and I a idiotic abbreviation. Sorry about that. No, you, you haven't. You've uh, been good today. But but um, <laughs> but I think I, so. I think in terms of uh, s sexual uh, minority women, I think uh, that for years uh, there was sort of this. Oh uh, well, you know, uh, you know, gay men are the problem, and transgender people are more more complex. But I think there's uh, obvious rec recognition uh, that rates rates around um, alcohol, tobacco, for example, uh, if you do population studies. Uh, have tended to be higher, uh, uh, but there are other issues, uh, you know, uh, and important issues that are are not fully addressed, and, and some of them are because of avoidant behavior. So there, um, um, HPV screening, for example, uh, lower rates of HPV screening leading to increased risk for cervical cancer uh, for, for lesbians. Uh, these, you know, like many of these issues, uh, they are being addressed more but not uh, as much as they, they should be. So there there are actually uh, specific programs. The, the a Lesbian Health Foundation has a, a mini grant uh, program that at least gets investigators started. Uh, that has led to some subsequent uh, uh, more substantive funding uh, from, from the NIH, but it is a big deficit in, uh, in what we know about sexual gender minority health. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. The the you know it is quite striking uh, the the disproportionate funding that is actually um, for uh, you know LGBT health different populations. So with um, gay bi and 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 men of sex men, largely the history of the AIDS epidemic in that community really propelled funding and attention. Um, and we have a a, a different experience uh, uh, for for women who are sexual minority. Um, you know, think issues uh, you know uh, including uh, for example um, weight related concerns, weight and shape related concerns, some evidence of, of high rates of obesity uh, for, for sexual minority women. Um, you know, in terms of uh, smoking, that's certainly another one would be, be a cancer pathway. So thinking about other institutes and types of health outcomes that maybe haven't been quite as explored in this population. So, you know, I would say, you know, cancer uh, especially being one for us to attend to in terms of funding. 
can I just add that this is a, another example of how important it is to add sexual orientation and gender identity measures to research, even when you think it's not about LGBTQ-related work, right? Because even if you are doing this research on cancer or whatever else, uh, and you're not explicitly looking at differences between lesbian women, bisexual women, and, and uh, heterosexual women, that data is still available for other researchers to maybe use in the future uh, and other work to be done. And so adding those measures, even when that's not the intended goal of the project, helps build a body of knowledge that can be built upon. And I would just point out that, that the lack of knowledge about gay health issues uh, before HIV started spreading is one of the key reasons that HIV actually got a foothold in the gay community. So that lack of evidence, lack of data, lack of appreciation by providers uh, in, in sectional minority women, for example, can really have a long-term and, and big impact when an infectious disease particularly breaks out. Thank you. I know we need to wrap up. I'm being told that Ashland may be connecting, oh, <laughs> just to maybe try her for the final wrap-up, okay, Joe, well, and see if she's first. in here. Um, okay, let's see if she's here. Ashland, uh, are you there? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, so I want to wrap up by getting a, a takeaway from each of you. Um, we'll start with Logan. What kind of policy message or recommendation would you make from, from today? Well, I think you've heard me say it multiple times. More data, please. Uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Um, you know, for me, I think that uh, the notion of uh, sexual orientation, gender identity as being social determinants of health is critical. And, and having that be standardized in demographics uh, as uh, a part of surveys and a part of uh, the issues and statuses of life that we really pay attention to for health. Um, everyone has a sexual orientation and a gender identity. So um, for providers to talk about this, it should be considered a fifth vital sign as part of clinical care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I want to thank all the panelists today and thank Ashlyn for giving it a good try. Um, uh, you can go to the HRC website and learn more about what they're, uh, what they're doing in this area. Um, I want to also alert you to the next forum. Uh, it's on gun violence, the gun violence epidemic and protecting the public's health. Uh, the discussion will continue on the forum website after this, so please send in your comments. Uh, we'll have some of the websites mentioned, I think, on the forum uh, website as well. Uh, the next forum is on April 6th uh, from noon to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And the forum website, again, is forumhsph.org. On behalf of our panelists in Harvard, NPR, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, thank you very much. This has been a production of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.